Low Light. Episode 11. The Old Dark Track. The breeze pesters the plastic tape holding back a gaggle of neighbours as they watch the little groups of police standing about, holding onto their radios or their guns. Big-chested they are in their padded uniforms. There's no loud hailer talk now, no advancing platoon of bobbies intent on pig slaughter. It's all been more relaxed since Shirley flagged down the Enormo sergeant and informed him that the rampant boar had been contained in a storeroom beneath the terrace at the back of the house. She'd had a message from within, she said. Ruby's face. Shocked does not cover it. How could a frail and confused old man have managed to herd a distressed 80-kilogram animal into one of his garden rooms? But Charity, who reads Gavin's text message over Shirley's shoulder, Charity turns white. Having spent the last ten minutes grilling Ruby about her reasons for being there, egged on subtly by Shirley, Charity is now compelled to inform Tanya about the increase in threat level regarding their warehousing situation. And our statuesque commander of the police response? Well, now that Piggy is pegged, the large sergeant instigates a flurry of consultation and negotiation that results in him leading a delegation to the front door of Lightwood Hall. You only need two people to make a delegation. It's him and Ruby. Shirley, eyes on the proceedings, surreptitiously messages the inmates in forewarning while Charity is pacing around further up the road on her phone. Debris skitters along the pavement, chased by the strengthening wind, and a draft finds its way up Gavin's trouser leg in Eric's kitchen as the three comrades within dissect the current situation. They'll shoot it, says Gavin, factually, picking bits of twig out of his hair. The Khan, says Al, heart still hammering, and shuffling bits of paper about before folding them back into her pocket. I think they have to, says Gavin, looking about for a place to dispose of his twig haul. They're both aware that Eric is leaning heavily on the worktop, breathing with some difficulty. His lower lip begins to tremble until he clamps it still with his teeth. He looks up sharply and sniffs. Florence doesn't deserve to be killed like a rat in a sack he says, and glances up almost involuntarily, and almost as if he expects some kind of retribution from above. Is there a scratching somewhere in the house? A squealing? Gavin shivers, pulls his phone out to read an incoming message. They've got to talk to the council, apparently, talking about barring access to the track and putting the neighbourhood on lockdown until morning because they think there are more of them. More boars, Gavin grimaces. Do you think, now Elle's back and Charity's involved, that the Mims will settle down, Eric? And what happens to the ones like, uh, Florence, that are in the here and now, as it were? Will they just, poof? Or are they here forever? New neighbours? No idea, 
Don't look at me. <laughs> really? Is this a thing with you people? You actualise mims willy-nilly, make them do what you want via the medium of scribbled notes, but whenever explanation or helpful action is needed, you just shrug and say, I don't know. Oh, I can't think about that now, I'm too tired. This is an emergency. You people, says Eric, mock offended. Elle shrugs. I don't know, though. I just had an urge to write down what I wanted to happen. Although, actually, it was what Eric wanted to happen, wasn't it? Maybe I'm just a translator or something. Blimey. It's like wading through treacle. Okay, well, that's good, right? More power to your elbow, Eric. But really, all it's done is delay the problem until later. If this is what we've got to deal with, dangerous animals attacking people, then we need to think how to reverse it. This process. We need a plan, don't we? Elle nods mildly. That's not what's happening, Eric mutters. Oh, any chance you can tell us what is? Eric wafts his hand at him, trying to bat his questions away, and goes to fill the kettle. It was probably an accident. I think the boar was distressed. It's just an animal. I don't think she's holding any grudges, is she, Eric? Not in any way other than boars usually would. Mm. Eric approves Elle's comment with a wave of a wooden spoon as he runs water in the sink for the washing up. Okay, fine. But look, three days, you said, Eric, for things to reach maximum volume, as it were. That means tomorrow night. That's when the shit hits the fan if we don't get things under control. We're already at the stage of armed police intervening to protect the public, so I think it's fair to say that further escalation in MIM activity cannot be allowed to happen. Eric begins to wash what is an astonishingly high pile of dirty plates and cups, vigorously and with fierce concentration. Eric! I know, I know, all right. Don't you think I know? The track's being torn up. Beasts are coming back, trying to get... Getting in! They're upstairs! What? What's upstairs? Shh! He turns, holding onto his dish mop, covered in suds. They drip into little mounds of bubbles on the floor. Splat. Gavin rakes his hands through his hair and looks from one storyteller to the other in frustration. Eric, speak plainly. What or who is upstairs? It's nothing. Nothing to worry about. It's my problem, not yours. It's everyone's problem, not this. This is only my problem. Okay, well, I'm sorry you've got a problem, but we need you to take courage and find some enthusiasm for solving the problem that you created that is affecting everybody else. <laughs> Come on, anything, just some ideas. One idea? Eric sags and puts the mop down. Oh, I don't think I'm up to it. I need a drink. You're not up to it. Look, I get that you're frightened, but surely you can talk about what might work. Surely? Oh, surely, is it? What do you know, you idiot? Hey, this idiot's here to help with your mess. That was quite nasty from Eric there. 
He seems to be feeling the pressure. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, lad. Oh, this is a young person's game. Well, that is the 21st century way. Leave us to clean everything up so the world can keep turning. Elle says under her breath. Eric flinches from her words. Gavin's phone is chirruping like a budgie. He shakes his head in resignation and focuses on the neighbor messages instead. What's going on? Asks Eric meekly with a jut of his chin. Gavin scrolls, frowns. People are saying there are animals attacking the pavements. And roads. What animals can rip a road up? Eric's eyes widen. Oh, hang on. Shirley says the police are coming to the front door to update you or something. Eric meets Gavin's eyes. Do you want me to go? No, thank you. I'll go. It's my house. Gavin, I am sorry. He looks away, blinks. There are some things we can try now Elle is back and if Charity is willing to help. But... I worry we might make things worse. I didn't expect the digging. The revealing of things. It's very worrying. You remember I said it's not the Mims themselves that are dangerous. Well, not any more than they would be in real life, like Elle says. It's what they decide to do together. And, oh, when I say decide, they won't have a conference and come up with a plan. It'll be a result of context and situation. The actions of others. All sorts of things. The weather. All sorts. But, yes, we can try and come up with a plan. The wind pipes up outside as if in applause. And then, for the third night in a row, the front door suffers impolite assault. Gavin is galvanised. Okay, well, get rid of the police and then we can talk. Uh, Have you got some paper? And we can do a brainstorm. Try and write out a strategy and give out tasks. Unless... Do you think we should try and explain to the police? We could talk to Ruby, Officer Hussein, I mean. She seems interested in what's going on and she knows a lot about animals. She walked with me along the track today. Eric raises his eyebrows as he thinks on it. Hmm he says, but then he's off, striding through his house as if he's about to fend off invaders. He stops inside the dusty hall, his hand on the doorframe. He stares at the door. Deirdre winds round his legs. He passes a hand across his face, pulling his dry skin down, before pulling the old door open and peering through the gap. A vulnerable old man, meeting the gaze of the solid younger policeman who looks back at him with a grave yet concerned expression. Eric blinks at him. Mr. Bright? Alex, he says weakly. Alex Farrelly? I'm Sergeant Farrelly. Yes, Alex. How lovely to see you. How's your mother? My mo- Lydia! Oh, now then, come in. Come in, lad. Oh, and uh, you were here before. Officer Hussein. Out of uniform, is it? Oh, come on in, then. 
and he shuts the door behind Alexander the Great and Ruby. Here, my lad, come through. Let's get the kettle on and you can tell me all there is to tell about the lovely Lydia. <laughs> you too, lass. Confronted with such jovial bonhomie, Alex gives a baffled smile and follows Eric into his dirty, cluttered kitchen. Ruby slinks along in their wake, hanging back as the others take seats. Gavin and Elle look like they've been caught with their hands in the biscuit tin. Good evening. Uh, didn't I meet you outside just now? Uh, how did you, uh, says Alex. Hi, uh, Gavin Barron. Good to meet you. I hear you've contained the danger. And then he notices Ruby and freezes. Ruby is quietly amused as she sets her gaze on Gavin and senses him squirming. Brilliant work with the pig. Dangerous. Well done. We're really pleased. Eric was worried, weren't you, Eric? Elle says as cover. Ruby's eyebrows rise. Aye, now then, sugar? Uh, yes, thanks, Mr. Bright. Two, please. In fact, we were informed that it was you. Oh, two, cackles Elle. Two sugars. <laughs> what about you, officer? Or can I call you, uh, I mean, you're not in uniform, so... Ruby! Gavin almost shouts. This is Ruby Hussein. I mean, they're getting a bit hysterical, really. What with the bizarre subterfuge and all. The sergeant, in all his solidity, is looking a little doubtful in his former conviction that he is facing a standard set of humans here. He makes as if to say something, then thinks better of it taking the cracked mug Eric offers him, full of steaming tea. Ruby takes hers and returns to her spot, away from the central gathering, out of immediate notice. Very kind. Thank you, Mr. Br oh! Mr. Bright! Eric's face is suddenly full of smile. I mean, you couldn't fit any more smile into a face if you got hold of a crowbar. Look at those wrinkles. So deep you could grow potatoes in them. The eyes are a sparkle, the eyebrows are dancing with delight and their little grey tendrils are quivering with mischief. And Sergeant Farrelly, we'd better give him his full rank now really, given the situation in which he appears to have found himself, has caught the contagious smiling sickness. His eyes are alive with pleasure, so pleased is he to have remembered this old man who... Who is he again? Oh, yes, he knew his mother. Now then, our Alex, do you remember when you came to the theatre and we sat down and talked about the magic forest? Magic? Now, when was that, eh? Let me see, I'd say early 90s, probably 1993. How old would you have been then, Alex? I'd have been six then, Eric. The sergeant waits for the memory to download. Yeah, I remember. I came with me mum and me little brother. Sean. That's right. Wow, you have a memory. That I do, my lad. Not much else left, but I do have that. Not always a blessing, but, uh, well, we'll come back to that. Gavin and Elle are thoroughly entertained by this new version of Eric. Elle looks like she wants to take notes. 
Gavin is itching to get his camera out. Then he notices messages coming in from Sherl. Yes, the magic forest. There were wild boar in that forest too, weren't there? And remember, we named them and Florence was mother and she looked after you, didn't she, while your mum wasn't there. Silence in the room as Eric allows his words to land. Alex stares, open-mouthed. Then, like a drop of water hitting a hard surface, the desolation strikes him as he remembers just what it felt like to be left alone for hours, hungry and frightened in a cold, dark flat with only his drooling, crying, nappy-wearing brother for company. And how wonderful it was to be placed at the heart of a magical world, where you were defended by fearsome beasts who let you ride on their wire-haired backs as they stormed across the vast plains of Eric's imagination and onwards towards the fantastic lands of the North with nothing but three wishes to see you on your way. Oh, what an adventure! Eric is smiling, his eyes glinting. You will look after Florence, won't you, Alex? Like she looked after you. You won't hurt her. Is that Florence? Eyebrows raised and a slight incline of the head towards the garden from Alex. Eric nods slightly, frowns pleadingly. You've named it her, have you? Okay, um, well... All right, look, we're not going to take any action tonight. We're proposing a lockdown, as we've been told that there are likely to be more boars in the vicinity, and it's better to deal with this in daylight and get everyone safe inside until then. So, uh, pending the approval of the council, we'll be doing that. And we intend to secure your uh, garden room, is it? It's a storeroom, that's all. Just a storeroom, nothing in it, except the pig. L turns to Gavin. Why is he talking? It's not a pig, Mr. Baron, pipes up Ruby, surprising everyone by still being there. It's important you know that and act accordingly. You shouldn't approach it or anything. It's very dangerous. My colleague is in hospital. Oh, we won't approach it, Ruby. Don't you worry, cuts in Eric. Gavin wouldn't approach a wild animal like that anyway, would you, Gavin? Not really a man for the natural world, eh? Gavin looks confused. Eric throws him a look. That's right. I prefer tarmac and concrete generally. Instant coffee, computers, double glazing. All right, lad. Bubble bath, microwave ovens. All right, Gavin. Very funny. Okay, well, we'll take a look at the building's entrance, and with your permission, we'll add whatever security measures we think are necessary. I take it the door entrance from the garden is the only one. Oh, yes, there's only that one, Eric says, busying himself with the kettle again. Yes, Florence will be happy in there. Perfectly well she'll be in there. Plenty of space for her. And she can snuffle about, hoovering up the insect life. And yes, we can let her out in the morning. No, Mr. Bright, you can't let her out. Ruby looks to the sergeant for confirmation. 
That's right, you mustn't let her out. Uh, it uh, out. No, no. Uh, we'll actually leave an officer here to make sure everything stays quiet for you, and we'll be imposing a curfew on the neighbourhood. Oh, right you are, lad. Understood. We'll wait for your next message before we... Uh... Yeah, all right. Okay. Uh, we'll need to check on the situation, re-council permission, so... I'll leave you now. Ruby stays quiet as Eric takes the policeman's arm and murmurs something to him. The others are straining to hear as the pair walk back out into the hall. The kitchen seems to wait for Eric to return. It slumps. Gavin lifts his foot and it sticks to whatever is coating the floor. He pulls and places it back in a slightly different spot with a look of distaste. Elle watches him. She's not impressed. He sees her judgment and looks contrite. They allow the sounds of their habitat to infuse the atmosphere. There's that scraping sound from above. Muffled, but definitely there. What is that? Asks Gavin. Probably mice, says Elle. Really? I don't like mice. I don't like you either. Ruby watches and listens, but keeps her counsel. Eric returns from his hosting duties and the kitchen perks up. Shirley and Charity are coming round the back way now, says Gavin, reading the message with a sinking heart, seemingly reminded of his earlier argument with Shirley. Argument? Was it? He doesn't usually argue. He feels a clench in his chest and belly as he allows himself to think what it might mean, an argument. The end of his relationship? Although it has ended before, albeit temporarily. The difference this time is that he isn't trying to appease Shirley. He isn't apologizing for his behavior like he usually does even though he's usually not really sure what he's meant to have done wrong. No, this time he's part of the action. His head is held up despite the horrible feeling in his belly. Eric puts his hand out to steady himself as he reaches the counter. The others look up alarmed. He's shaking. Eric, are you? Yes, I'm all right. Stop asking me that. He passes his hand over his face again. Okay, do you want me to deal with upstairs? No, they're all right. Are they locked in? Yes. They shouldn't be. I know. Shall I? Oh, do what you want. It's not what I want, Eric. It's what I think's right. <laughs> he splutters. What's right? So moralistic, aren't they, the young? He says to Gavin, who looks utterly bewildered and glances at Elle questioningly. Eric stops himself, as if he's only just heard what came out of his own mouth. He gasps slightly. Sorry, he says, as his face crumples. I'm sorry. I don't know where that came from. I'm sorry, Elle. I didn't mean it. It's all right. Eric, you're upset and tired. What's happened? There's a wild boar in your storeroom. That's enough to bring out anyone's nasty side. We've all got one. Eric looks at him, laughs, 
No. Not all of us, lad. You haven't. Rare, that. How do you know whether... Here they are! Eric blurts. Shadows fall across the frosted glass in the kitchen door. They recognise the voices, and Elle steps over to let Shirley and Charity in. Deirdre takes to higher ground and growls at yet another reg invasion. This is getting too frequent for her liking. Now then, Deirdre, don't go all mardy. That's no way to welcome guests, is it? The cat leaps away from Eric onto the top of the fridge. Oh, Deirdre, I was joking, don't take on so. Is he all right? Says Shirley to Gavin with a frown. Is she accusing? Well, whether she is or isn't, Gavin doesn't take it well and gives the classic passive-aggressive eyebrow raise, downturn of mouth and shrug combo, so beloved of warring couples. Shirley replies with a standard eye roll and sigh. Eric, how are you doing? She says. I'm all right. Deirdre isn't happy about Reg, though. Look. Oh, do you want me to, um, I can take him home if you like. Sorry, you don't usually mind him coming. He won't hurt her. Oh, do what you want. Eric, says Elle. What? What? Oh, I need a drink. Gavin looks alarmed. Brilliant work, Eric, containing the beast, says Shirley. It wasn't Eric, it was Elle. She did it, says Gavin. Shirley spins towards her and smiles. Wow! It was Gavin, actually, says Elle. Charity's eyes widen. Shirley's face freezes. Gavin shakes his head. No, it wasn't. It was Gavin. If he hadn't done what he did, the boar would have attacked me. Both of us, probably. It was very brave. A self-deprecating snort laugh there from Gavin which has the effect of dampening whatever admiration had been blossoming in Shirley's heart and turning it into no-nonsense resentment. Ruby listens, wide-eyed, but undetected by the incomers. I'll go and get a bottle, says Elle. Gavin can go. He knows where it is, don't you, Gavin? Says Eric mischievously. There's a boar in there. Anyway, there's a police officer outside. There's another way in. It'll be all right, won't it, Eric, if I go? You know it'll be all right. Elle bites her lip and then nods. Do you? Know what? Asks Gavin, astonished. How? Elle shrugs. Right, same doodah as the pig wrangling. It just came to you. Gavin shakes his head in resignation. Eric clears his throat looks straight at Ruby as she steps forward, intent on stopping Elle from leaving. Still here? Looks like it. She smiles at him. Elle takes out her notebook, scribbles something down and hands it to Ruby. She takes it, perplexed, and as she reads, Elle leaves the kitchen, in pursuit of a bottle of the green. Eric smiles as he watches Ruby, the others hold their tongues, wrapped. Except Charity. Why are you still here? Eric sorts out glasses and passes them around. How do you know so much about animals? Adds Charity. 
Ruby looks at the note in her left hand and the glass in her right. She gazes vaguely in the direction that Elle has left. I studied zoology for my degree. Gavin looks like the angel Gabriel has beamed his light directly onto him. So delighted and amazed is he at this revelation. But you're just a police officer, says Shirley with a sneer. Just, says Eric, speaking so Gavin doesn't have to. Yes, I am now. I'm not very good at sticking to one thing. I thought I wanted to be a detective, but... Anyway. Why a detective? asks Charity. Er... Well, I suppose I'm interested in people and how they get themselves into different situations and what leads them there. The stories behind the acts of violence or betrayal, love. Although I'm not sure the police actually care that much about that, so I don't know. Maybe it's not the right road for me after all. Why were you there on the track? How did you know about the boar? asks Shirley. I didn't. Well, why were you there, then? Charity is insistent. Her and Shirley are a little double act. Was it the bracelet? Asks Gavin. Eric glares at him. Yes and no. I don't know. I just wanted to have another look. It seemed odd, didn't it? All that activity. I mean, either there's been an entire zoo released into, what, 500 metres of public footpath? Or there's some kind of migration happening for some reason, and I'm curious. So, I went back for a look. You're interested in people's stories, says Elle as she re-enters the kitchen, undoes the bottle, pours the drinks for people, plucks the note back from Ruby's hand as she does so and pockets it. Yes, says Ruby as she contemplates the green liquid. There's quiet as everyone sees Ruby wrestle with her memories. They show up on her face. She takes a sip of her drink, looks up to see everyone watching her and blushes. Go on, says Eric quietly. She smiles at him. In my family, we were storytellers. Well, well, well. The audience is wide-eyed and speechless. Our tradition was from the Arabic or Islamic Rawi. My family's name was Al-Rawi before my grandparents' marriage, which means storyteller. You know the oral tradition where stories are told to each generation, not so much written down? There are still people that do that, actually. But anyway, when my daddy came here in the 50s, they broke the line of it, you know. They didn't live within the expat community. I suppose I've always been a bit misty-eyed about it. A bit annoyed that I never got to be part of it. I've always felt that I missed out on something. Ruby takes a drink of the green liquid. Gavin nods in a stupor. Eric has his serious face on. But yes, Mr. Baron, <laughs> Gavin, the ID bracelet. It just seems so odd when that parakeet tried to peck it out of your hand, didn't it? Ruby's cheeks are aglow now and her eyes are sparkling. There's a burst of radio speak from outside, and Eric's phone rings. Yes? Oh, hello, Alex. Yes? Okay, right. Yes, all right. Understood. Thank you. Curfew? Asks Gavin. Aye, 15 minutes. Parakeet? Asks Charity. 
Yes, there are populations of them across the country, but you still don't expect to encounter one generally, do you? There were loads of them in Shirley's back garden this morning, says Gavin, before glancing at Shirley and wondering if she minds him revealing stuff like that. Although, why shouldn't he, actually? Shirley won't meet his eye. She mumbles something nobody catches and crouches down to Reg, stroking his fur and avoiding everything. Was there? What were they doing? It's not usual for a flock to land in a garden, unless it's a very large area like this land out the back of this house. I can imagine they would love it in here, rambles Ruby. People are waiting for Shirley to say something else, but she just stays down there, holding on to her dog. Reg licks her face in sympathy. There were at least three monkeys in the trees out there this evening too, although they looked like they were just monkeying about, so par for the course. Gavin smiles, but his attention is still half on Shirley. There did seem to be a lot of scratching at the ground going on, so I wonder if there's been some change in the ecology of the area that's compelling these animals to dig en masse into the earth. But for the life of me, I can't imagine what. Looking for warmth, food or shelter is the usual reason, but I'm just wondering if there's maybe a substance presence in the soil. Even something like a metallic element. Eric is staring at Shirley. He drinks and gives a sniff. A bike is made of metal, he says. Shirley jerks her head up to meet his eyes and looks at him accusingly. Gavin realises that she's crying and moves towards her to see if she's okay. She flinches from him and topples onto her hands on the floor. It's such a strange thing. She was all right a minute ago, but now she's bereft. Eric stares, emotionless, but curious. Elle looks at Charity and Ruby at Gavin. Shirl, ventures Gavin. What's up? Is it the bike? She turns on him, gets back to her feet and roars at him. Shut up, just shut up. Sorry, I thought it was a nice thing. Sorry, Eric, wasn't it a nice thing, the bike? Stop it, stop trying to. God, it's not got anything to do with Eric, it's. Oh, leave me alone, okay? I don't want to remember. I don't want to. Why am I being made to think about what happened to me? I don't want to. Just leave me alone. Reg is excited by Shirley's rage and is jumping up at her like he used to when he was a puppy. Stop it, Reg. Just fucking stop it. And she pushes him away. Ruby catches his lead and holds him back. Shirley pushes past the friends, wrenches the door open so a fierce blast of wind and bits of paper and plastic rush in so everyone shields their eyes and turns their heads and Shirley's off out of the back door running, stumbling, running away. Gone by the time they all turn back. Elle struggles against the wind to replace the door in its frame and done. The kitchen glares its strip light bleaching each of the human inhabitants. Gavin goes to follow Shirley, but the glass is blocked by a police officer outside. Stay inside, please, everyone, he says, and the loud hailers start up again, although they are useless this time. Their messages whipped up to the heavens.
Shirley emerges hectic with bramble scratches and tears from Eric's front gate, where a policewoman waylays her, trying to bar her way and send her back into the house. Shirley thinks for a second about explaining, but then throws her hands up, steps back like a teenager, and turns and shoots off the other way down Alder, taking the long way back home. She slows once she's out of reach of the police and half sobbing, half shielding her eyes from the wind-blown dross, she lurches a longer ways before becoming aware of the sounds of someone else crying. She can see someone across the street, standing in their garden, looking into a pit in their lawn, hugging themselves and howling. Someone else comes out of the house to try and take them back inside. Through her tears, she also vaguely registers that there are loads of animals scuttling about and pawing the ground all down the road, oblivious to the traffic, unafraid of the police or neighbours taking photographs of them or shooing them away. She slows down and realises that they are working almost on a little chain gang, as if following some plan to breach the surface of the tarmac and dig a channel of their own their own animal highway. She turns back to her own route and on she half runs, half limps, passing the church and nearly getting knocked down by Tanya in her car. She thumps on the hood and stares at her as she forces Tanya to stop and then runs on again and on. A man striding towards her shouts, That was your fault! You should have checked for cars. You can't be banging your fist on someone else's car. Oi, you, I'll tell the police. There's a curfew as well. Why are you running about the streets? Why are you? Shirley blasts back at him from the bottom of the road before she disappears round the corner. It's like no time has passed, she thinks, as if all that time between then and now has dissolved and she's back there again. She runs on looking up at every sob and shout and nasty word that she encounters. It's like an epidemic of bad feeling, an outbreak of depression. Is this all Eric and Padma's doing? She wonders, who else will be going through this? Lewis? Sally? What about Cat? On she presses, keen to get back home and find Cat. Mick is in the cul-de-sac, chasing down some low-slung beast with a big stick. She avoids him and finally arrives home, her phone ringing with Gavin's worry and the sound of Cat screaming into her own phone on the other side of the front door. The wind wails. It moans loudly, then seems to sag as it rests, ready for its next holler. When it retreats, the air is filled with the scuffles and thumps of the mims at work. Across Lower Lee, pavements and roadways, side paths, footpaths and through routes are attacked by creatures of every stripe, led by those with large solid claws and big paddle paws, those with tusks and muscled forearms. All of the animal tools are brought to bear. They pull and tug at cracks in the tarmac and delve into fissures, niggling and worrying until the material gives way. They prod and poke underneath the covering surfaces and pull and pull and pull 
and pull and crack open the council's crust of municipal responsibility until the flesh of the place is revealed, pulsing in the low light. If we rise up on this next current of resentful air, we can see that these rendings make up a line through the town. A line in the land that begins at the old end of things. It seems that the old dark track is not untethered after all. Quite the opposite. It lives on as it ever did, but for many years only part of the ancient lane was allowed to breathe, whereas each end of it was covered over by developing communities with their dwelling places and their need for different directions and pipes and cables and traffic lights. Up we go and look down to see this scar emerging in the land, extended from each end of the footpath, onwards from Lightwood Hall, down Alder Road, and out from Padma's house, up the hill of Hawthorne. Perhaps the footpath here was the midpoint of the old lane. Is this where the oldest memories lie, where nostalgia gathered in the valley as the mud pike formed under the feet of walkers from former centuries, going along and coming back? And where are the ends of this dark wind? Does that matter? Perhaps the Mims are simply homesick, looking for their life force in the land. We can only speculate while observing that on the ground, the excavation continues under some duress, as those whose property edges onto these works take umbrage at the strange activity and try to dissuade the labourers from their tasks with buckets of water, hoses, swear words, and in one case, Mick, a ceremonial sword. But each time the furious wind releases another growl, the neighbours are beaten back indoors for fear of being struck by debris, and the Mims peek back from their hiding places and continue with their toil. We can see, too, that within the property boundaries, the more confident among the animal number labour less likely to balk at the presence of a human they are. Fearsome, some of them. Although shocked by the capture of the female boar, they gird their loins and move into the sinks and pits of discarded secrets and often told lies. They fertile about on lawns and in flower beds, under hedges and around ponds. They burrow and snuffle stick their snouts into the ground and torment the earth until it gives up its booty. Carefully, they drag the crumbs of soil from the edges of objects. They lick the surfaces clean. On Hawthorne Road, things are askew. Sarah is standing next to her car, having only just arrived home. She has paused there because there are police urging everyone inside, and she wants to know why. Now, though, she is staring up at tree number 33, the beautiful strong beech tree that covers the end of the cul-de-sac, as well as the gardens of three houses and over Hawthorne Road itself. Its leaves drop on Sarah and Lewis's front garden. It's famous in their neighborhood. She stares at it, 
then pulls her head back slightly, focusing on the house behind it. Something's not right. The tree is not straight. It's always been straight. Vertical, I mean. Hasn't it? The door behind her opens a crack. Sarah, the police want everyone inside. She swings round. Lou, come and look at this. There's a curfew. Come on. There are escaped boars. Sarah. Look at the tree. It's leaning. What? Sarah's words were whipped away by the strengthening wind. Oh, God, Sarah! He exclaims as a branch falls and bangs onto Sarah's car. Oh! She shouts. Come in, Sarah! More twigs and branches fall from the tree, and its massive trunk seems to lurch to the left. Brandon and Stefan are crouching as they run past with arms over their heads. Sarah locks her car and runs in, and once under the porch, she shouts to them. Guys, come in from the weather. Come on. Stefan pulls Brandon over and then trips on a pothole, bringing both of them down. They send various animals scattering to avoid their fall. Oh, God. Sarah moves as if to help them, but Lewis holds her back. I'll go. He makes his way to them and almost falls himself as he realises the pavement at the end of their garden path has dropped. As he reaches the flailing men, a loud bang goes up. Something heavy has hit Sarah's car. They all turn in time to see a primate of some kind leap off the vehicle, seemingly having dropped from the wind-torn tree into the road and scuttle off down the side of Padma's house. They all stop for a beat, taking this in then gather their various flailing limbs and flapping clothes and take shelter. In they stumble to the house and slam the front door on the mayhem. Lewis leans on the inside of the front door out of breath. They all stare at each other in the quiet of the hall, taking in the strangeness of the wild noise outside and becoming aware of the whining from the dog crate in the front room as Lewis and Sarah's puppy pleads for safety and comfort. Lance flicks the light on in his kitchen diner. He's arrived here after ascending the stairs from his basement, where he's been on the PlayStation since he got home, and having just purchased the Fortnite crew pack, it looks like he was planning to get himself something to eat to go with his can of Bitburger. He's opened the fridge and is bending slightly from the waist, perusing the array of slowly rotting salad and plastic tubs of Italian ready meals, when he realises that there is noise from outside. He has neglected to put on the radio, so the contrast between his quiet interior, with its coloured LED backlights throwing everything he owns forward into the room, like they're on display in a department store, and the roar and cracks and bangs from the other side of his bifold doors intrudes rudely. He backs out of the big black fridge, holding the door open, while he stands, listening and looking at the shadows wafting across the glass. The outside security light glares on, and he physically flinches, mouth open, at the scene presented to him. It's like the Wizard of Oz, It's a hurricane out there, branches and bits of litter flying about, plant pots skittering and rolling around on the patio madly, 
A sheet of plastic from somewhere slaps against the glass doors. Then a large bird careers extravagantly through the air towards the lawn beyond the paved area and Lance steps forward in awe, peering to see if it crashes. But it veers away from the ground then and back into the howling night. Lance is fully alert now though, his attention all on the earth as he sees in front of him the ongoing excavations of his once manicured and perfectly flat lawn. It looks like a quarry made of chocolate ice cream. The churned mud melts and settles as animals dig and tunnel, reaching the wet below the topsoil and mixing everything together. The fridge alarm goes off and he jumps, turns in a daze to close the door, frowns and shakes his head, not believing what he just saw and spins around again to go and have another look. Sees it in all its glory again. Opens the door wide. He laughs. It's got to be a setup, this. Where's the camera? Then he sees the red eye glint and jerks his body back into the house as he notices just how many rats there are there among the throng of four-legged creatures. There are foxes, badgers, what looks like a skunk. Do we have those in this country? Is that a weasel? The wind in the willows, he thinks, and just for a moment he smiles like a ten-year-old. Until he sees the swarm of wasps. Melanus arvensis, not usually that aggressive and unusual to see them in February, but that's what they are. They're hectic in their battling against the wind, but determined in one thing wiping that smile off Lance's face. Lance? Oh yes, he's noticed and is grabbing the door handle to close it, but he's forgotten you need to lift that lever thing and is panicking. Oh, oh he's got it and is sliding it shut and he'll make it, I think, except there's one particularly single-minded wasp ahead of the others and she arrows towards him and smacks him right in the nose, just as he reseals his little fiefdom. The insect wins itself and sufficiently confuses Lance so that he tumbles onto his backside from where the wasp finds purchase into his clothing and, well, let's just say I didn't know Lance could pass for a soprano. Tanya has arrived home. She's in her car, turns it into her driveway, having driven the short distance from the church through the wailing storm. She senses something wrong. Well, you would, wouldn't you, with all this deconstruction of polite society? Her ears are tuned beyond the yawning air, and she picks up on the activity in her garden, in the dark, beyond her headlights. There's no animal calling now. It's like dinner time when the chatter of the family dies away while people get down to the important task of eating their food. Tanya thinks for a moment, then gives her head a little shake. She is not a woman unused to peril. She will not be frightened by an idea of something in the dark. That's not happening. She rummages in her bag and draws out her phone, gets out of the car and ties her scarf tight against the cold wind. She switches on the torch on her phone and advances down that narrow path that runs along the bottom of the side lawn, giving access to the shed. 
she's harassed by flying detritus and bits get into her eyes, but she removes each annoyance patiently and with lowered eyelids to filter more chaff, moves forward to the place behind the light. She stops when she sees that the green of the lawn ends and there is black earth exposed where the turf has been ripped away. And as she uses the beam of the torchlight to examine the extent of the damage, she discovers an almost perfectly proportioned cross shape gouged out of the expanse of green. In it, perfectly clean, as if they've just been through the wash, are, in no particular order, a Bible, a pair of headphones, quite large, probably 20 years old, a heart-shaped gold locket, and a set of car keys. Tanya's knees weaken and she steps forward onto the soft ground, her heels sinking in a little. She pulls it back in disgust as she emits a gasp of surprise. Then a branch from her cherry tree gets loose and whacks her on the side of her head. She sprawls forward, face down in the dirt, out cold. In Eric's kitchen, Gavin clicks his phone off with a sour look on his face. He can't raise Cat, and he isn't happy about having had to try. She'll have to go home. The police will make her go inside, reasons Charity. Yeah, I hope so, says Gavin, looking guilty. Eric, what just happened? How do I know? I can't fix everyone, you know. What do you mean? asks Ruby, standing up. Eric tuts. You can let the dog off its lead. Deirdre can look after herself. He gets a bowl with some water for Reg. Why is it up to you to fix people? Are you a psychologist? Elle smiles warmly. Better than that. He's a storyteller too. Are you? What, do you mean you're a writer or...? No, he's like you. Well, like your family. Which is a bit of a coincidence, really, isn't it? Eric clears his throat. Tell her, Eric. I'm not. Not anymore. Not now everything's unravelling. What do you mean? Oh, stop asking questions. Look, I suppose you'll have to stay here for the moment unless you can sneak out onto the beaks of the dibble. Ruby looks offended. And you're welcome. Eat, drink, whatever you want. Just leave me alone. He makes to walk away. Eric, you said you'd help with a plan. And the girls need your help, don't you? Charity and Elle look at him. They don't look convinced. Well, don't you? Repeats Gavin. Help with what? asks Ruby. Training. Don't they need training? I never had any training! Eric shouts. Everyone lets the sound stop echoing around the room. Should I go? asks Ruby, uncomfortable. No! says Gavin, then swallows as he realises he's revealed his hand, as it were. It's not safe, he says apologetically. Elle laughs. She's enjoying herself. Gavin's phone beeps. It's Shirley, thank God. She says it's not just her. It's not just her that's upset. 
there are people screaming at each other and crying all over the place, apparently. And she says, look out of the window down older. Elle's off. They can hear her running up the stairs. Be careful, Elle, the banister, calls Eric. Come up, calls Elle. It's amazing. Charity runs after her. Eric stops her. No, you'll fall. Don't run. I mean it. He follows her out with a dismissive wave of his hand to Ruby. Ruby waits for Gavin. Come on, let's go and have a look, he says. What's going on, Gavin? What's this plan? It's not about freeing the boar, is it? And why do the young women need training? Oh, and I wanted to talk to you about that bracelet we found, too. Gavin is keeping his mouth zipped, but has to say something. Yeah, we can have a chat about that later, but let's go and see what's going on outside first. They climb the stairs and stop at the landing window in the centre of the house with the others. Everyone stares, speechless, at the dark trench that has been dug just out from Eric's gate into the road and is beginning to be excavated down the hill on one side, just by the curb, as was. Eric, what? Don't ask me. I don't bloody know. It's the track, isn't it? Says Elle. Look at the animals, says Ruby in awe. The critters are working like navvies, moving forward to the next section as they complete a small piece. A trod gate, says Eric. A path beaten down by walking. But it's the track, Eric. It's growing, isn't it? Out from the footpath, behind your garden, and down the side. I bet if we look out of the bathroom window... And Elle is off like a goat leaping from one good bit of floor to the next, pushing open the little window in the bathroom and shouting back, Yeah! I can see it! There's not much light, but you can see it run. A dark line all down the side of the house. That's extraordinary, says Ruby. You're not wrong says Gavin. How long has it been a footpath, do you know? The bit that runs across the wasteland? Eric eyes Ruby, sucks his teeth. It was there when this house was built in the 1830s. In fact, there is still supposed to be a public right-of-way through the garden, but one of the Brights paid off the council to get it forgotten from the local records. So, it's an old path? I wonder if it's actually very old, like one of those ancient lanes. Ruby's already googling. Where did it connect? asks Charity. If the path runs from the back of here and stops the other side of the Lee Garden, but that's just a section of the original track, where did it begin and end? Is that relevant? asks Gavin. Charity frowns at him. Are you relevant? Elle laughs again. Charity, don't be so mean. I asked a question. He disrespected me. I didn't mean that. I meant, God, the mim... Animals are digging up an old path in a seemingly organised fashion, so all I meant, Charity, is maybe the A to B of it isn't the most important thing. There's still no need to be so negative. Perhaps it's the act of recreating the path that is most important says Ruby, as she concentrates on her research. Only connect. 
Gavin twinges his neck again. Yes, he says. Did you find any references online? Well, the only old track I can see running near to this town is Mimmer's Lane, but it looks like a ridgeway. Mimmer's? Yeah, but a ridgeway runs along the ridge of hills or high ground, not in a valley. Clues in the name! Ruby does a comedy cross-eyed performance, which makes Gavin's belly turn to liquid, and Elle have to stifle a smirk. Memory. Dream. Contemplates Eric. Mimesis. Look up the word mimmers. It's not the same meaning, says Eric. If you won't help Eric, we'll have to do our own research, won't we? Don't have a go at Eric, says Charity. Quiet, says Ruby, to everyone's surprise. Okay, hang on. Elle is serious. Eric's right. Memory, dream, reminiscence. It's secrets that are being revealed. Memories that have been hidden or obscured. Ruby looks at her and then reads... Etymology. Origin uncertain. Perhaps from an alteration of mamma or from Middle Dutch mimeren to ponder or from Old English mimerian, memorian to keep in mind, remember. Compare also Danish mimre to reminisce. Uh, verb to dote, dream, mamma. Mimmering, mimicking, could be a variation of mummer. As a noun, mimmer, plural mimmers, alternative form of mummer. The mummers, says Charity, like the travelling players. Eric, didn't you tell us you and Padma met with a theatre group? Aye. Oh my God. Which way did you walk? Asks Gavin. When? Eric! Don't be obtuse. When you and Padma walked out into the countryside the morning after she knocked on your door, remember? All right, all right, bloody hell. There's a scuffling sound coming from the lantern room. Elle notices it, but keeps quiet. Oh, hang on. In the north of England, many old trackways were built high up using the natural stone in the land as a natural paving. Whereas in southern England, you get sunken lanes, hollowways they're called. But these ridgeways would sometimes have to cross a valley, and these would sometimes be sunken into the ground. That must have changed, though, I guess, with vehicles becoming more common, right? I mean, roads are built following the line of valleys now and avoiding hills, aren't they? Anyway, if this track outside is part of the old Mimmers Lane, it must be very old, like... Iron Age, Saxon kind of old, or from before. Mimmers. Mims, Eric. It's the Mims path. They're awake, and you're here, and oh, it's all connected. What are Mims, Gavin? Gavin has been caught. He'll have to tell her now. I'll explain in it. Eric, which direction did you go? Was it down Alder? No. No? No. We went out the back to Padma's house and down the side there and up Hawthorne. We went up the hill, up the rack. Gavin is jumping up and down. Charity is on the phone. Remember Ockham's razor, though? Could just be random animal behaviour, says Elle. Oh, God, not again, says Charity with an eye roll, waiting for her call to be answered. Elle laughs again. 
We've had more smiles from her in one short hour than the whole time she's lived with Eric. I don't think so. There's so many different species, and so many not from round here. <laughs> I'll be humming the Hovis tune next, won't I? Hang on. Are Mims the animals? The ones that have appeared recently? Gavin grits his teeth and gives an apologetic look to a frowning Eric. <laughs> yeah. Elle laughs at the Hovis joke. And, yeah... Gavin came up with the word. Why Mim? If it isn't the same as Mimmers, Eric, where does it come from? Oh, you mentioned it, didn't you? Mimesis. It's just a word for us to use, is all. It's not. It's not just a word. Look it up. It means something. It's how we think they got here. But actually... What's more important now is the track, Mimmer's Lane. Reminiscence, recall, traces of evidence. She looks at Ruby. I think the Mims are like you too. Redrawing the track, digging down into history. They're detectives. We're storytellers, and you're a detective. You and Gavin, actually. Aren't you trying to understand what you found on the track, Gav? It's both of these things, truth and fiction, stories, people's lives, it's all connected. Everything's so confused at the moment, we need a reset. Padma dies, and look what happens. Suddenly, three storytellers and two detectives are all in one place trying to come up with an explanation and a new plan. Reg whines at the lantern room door. Maybe Reg is the third detective. Yeah, says Gavin. It's Mimma time with the two trios. And he starts dancing with Reg. Sally? Yeah, yeah, I'm fine. Don't worry. No, listen. Can you go and look out of your upstairs window? Yeah. Oh, are you? Okay. Is it? Yeah, yeah, no, I know. It's wild, isn't it? Can you see a line in the road? Yeah. Right. Okay, no, no, that's all I needed. Yeah, no, honestly, I'm fine. I'm at Eric's. Everyone's fine. Okay, thanks. I've got to go. Bye. Charity clicks the phone off and is nodding at Gavin. It's Mimmer time. Gavin, will you get a hold of yourself, if only to avoid the staircase disintegrating? Pleads Eric. Sorry. Okay, stop now, Reg. Reg stops, panting. Now, they all turn their heads at the sound of the lantern door. It's being pushed against from the inside. Reg's ears prick, and he's off across the landing. No, Reg, wait here! Reg ignores Eric and launches himself at the lantern door, scratching and yelping and sniffing at the gap at the bottom. Charity, Elle and Ruby all share a look. Gavin is not happy thinking about what might be going on. I think you might need to deploy that instruction book again, Elle, says Gavin, with only a hint of sarcasm.
You have been listening to Low Light, written, performed, and produced by Melanie Crawley for Crawley Voice Studio. Find out more at crawleyvoicestudio.com. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.